0: to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Holly, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm not going to act like we didn't just talk for a few minutes off air, but would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Sure, Robbie. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk with you today. I'm Holly Janacek. I am an associate professor of German at James Madison University, which you could see um, on the lovely illustration behind me. Um, I earned my PhD in German studies with a concentration in cultural studies um, at the University of Pittsburgh. And my research focuses on 19th century to contemporary 21st century um, Germanophone literature, um, culture. I'm particularly interested in um, narration, emotion, gender um, and animals and machines. Um, And at JMU, I teach everything from uh, contemporary German literature and cultural history, Um, uh, language courses, and um, also German-English translation.
0: Let's uh, start off with uh, animals and machines. How how do you have an interest in animals and machines, and where particularly do you focus with animals and machines?
1: That's a great question. So I have uh, a prop with me. So um, I co-edited this volume uh, with my dear friend and um, colleague historian, um, Dr. Erica Quinn, um, currently at Eureka College, Um, so animals, machines, and AI. Um, is a book that was published at the end of 2021, it appeared. So we completed the work almost two years ago. Um, But there, we're interested in telling a story um, focusing on German literary and cultural history from the Enlightenment to the present, um, looking at human, um, non-human animal relationships, and also human uh, technology relationships over um, the past few centuries. And we both approached that work. via the field um, called the history of emotions
0: now when we talk about human and non-human isn't um, robots are non-human it's not just animals though but what are you considering non-human
1: yeah so in that project we focus on um, non-human animals so and we use the prefix non-human to emphasize that humans are also animals so we're not trying to you know we're, we're trying to emphasize Uh, what in post-humanism and uh, animal studies uh, they refer to as the entanglement right between humans and other life forms so it's a very um, inclusive understanding we're not trying to create sharp uh, divisions and reinforce anthropocentric ideas of human superiority rather we're really trying to challenge um, that so yeah, we we decided to focus on um, on other animals and um, machines, and what those machines look like in focusing on Germanophone cultural history. Um, Everything from 19th century stage automata um, to uh, more realistic um, depictions of robots and uh, artificial intelligence in contemporary um, literature and cinema, but also um, industrial machines. There are um, a number of very important paintings um, in German art history. focusing on kind of the human uh, machine interaction in factories, for example. And uh, what we found is uh, many of the the works of uh, visual culture, of cinema, of uh, literature we examined show this tension. Um, I think that's that's a common thread throughout the book, looking at all of our different uh, contributors chapters And um, in our introduction, there's this uh, sense of attraction, fascination, right, with the new technologies, uh, with our similarity to animals, but then also um, aversion. Uh, So uh, we talked about uh, Luddism before we started the podcast. And so I think... Yeah, there's this kind of tension uh, through history that we still see today thinking of things like chat GPT, for example, and the excitement, the new possibilities, but also. Oh, no, what is this going to do to jobs and how will we teach students when there's this temptation to use these this new technology in certain ways so.
0: There's still that fear, though. That's what's interesting is even back then they had a fear of machines coming into the workplace and there's that fear of machines coming into the workplace. Now, I just think they would solved it by making it look more human. It seems like when things look more human, have four or two arms and two legs, It just there's the fear kind of goes away a little bit, maybe not so much for the job thing, but you're able to connect with it a little bit more. I mean, it goes into the animals thing. I think throughout history, I mean, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but animals have been given a sense more of empathy, um, at least in certain animals, obviously. But like house pets, like cats and dogs, there's always this like connection, immediate connection, immediate love. And then if you have something like, I don't know, obviously different animals, there's a different connection there. Sometimes you don't have a connection with a cow. Some people do, but some people don't treat it as like a, a more human like thing. Like for people, dogs and cats are like, they're everything. And it's something that they can just emotionally connect to. But then you get into like robots I see so many videos of them kicking them and just doing that where I'm like, I don't know if it was like that back then, but then you give a robotic dog different impact. I mean, I had a different feeling towards a robotic dog. I'm definitely not going to treat it bad. I'm going to treat it like it's a normal dog. Well, slight, maybe a little bit bit less because it's a machine, not a living organism. But I look at it differently. I don't know where this is going to evolve, but it's just interesting to me to see that there's still kind of, in some areas, it's the same and in some areas indifferent. different. I mean, would you say that back then they would be able to recognize or no? today, they'd be able to recognize a lot of the things from back then when it comes to the feelings and emotions people had towards either machines or animals. In some ways, I think it's kind of still the same, just the technology has changed a different course. It's kind of looks a little bit different than maybe what they depicted.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. You mentioned so many things I want to talk about, including the Starship robots. That's what you were <laughs> kicking them, right? So uh, maybe we can go back to that. I mean, and and part of the thing that um, my my colleague uh, Erica Quinn and I noticed was we had planned this project like we started in the the brainstorming phases. Uh, In 2018, it was a kind of spinoff of a course I was teaching at JMU, um, Humans, Animals, Machines. And it was not just, it was an English taught course, uh, but focusing on uh, works of German literature. um, And and we also read, for example, Shelley's Frankenstein, um, some other contemporary works, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, for example. I also taught a version uh, with Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun looking... um, that uh, that new novel a couple of years ago. Um so uh yeah you mentioned robotic dogs. So I I think it's tricky with robots because there's uh um Japanese roboticist Mas- Masahiro Mori developed the the idea of the uncanny valley. So I think uh right there there's that um that sense of aversion of uh right we we can empathize more with a robot that yeah looks like a a dog right a kind of cute robot or maybe you've seen the robot pepper uh, with that very like childlike round face right and those robots I think uh, have been used in nursing care facilities um, perhaps hospitals and um, sometimes they have like an iPad um, display with them so I think that that robot for many people, might be cute and unthreatening, so it doesn't fall into the uncanny valley. But um, maybe you've seen the robot Sophia uh, with more of a human-like face. Some people might be uh, repulsed by robots like that because they it tries to get closer right, to um, the kind of human form. And I remember in this uh, comparative literature course at JMU, uh, when I first taught the course, I showed a video uh, of the robot Sophia, And uh, Sophia was being interviewed, I I think, by the creator, and she said something to the effect of, okay, I will destroy humans. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think combined with uh, maybe something that approaches, you know, what looks like a human, but then that's that's where we get to that kind of tipping point um, to kind of the fear and aversion that, yeah, I mean, from from what we've uh, researched, it, it seems that there was kind of a similar phenomenon already um, in the late 18th, early 19th century, and um, a, a brilliant early work that um, addresses this, and it's one that we we open. Um, the book with. And by the way, um, if anyone is interested, um, the chapter is written in English, and it was really important to Erica and me to have our work um, accessible to the public. So the introduction of animals, machines, and AI um, is available in open access. Um, so no institutional login or, or fee is required to um, read that. But we uh, we begin with a reference to E.T.L. Hoffman's uh, novella um the Sandman, um and it's available in English translation, but that one depicted uh a student, Nathaniel, who falls in love with an early automaton named uh Olympia and chooses Olympia over the human lover, and so there are all kinds of uh, interesting things um they're exploring uh kind of romantic love and uh and this kind of yeah idea of the uncanny that then inspired a Sigmund Freud and Ernst Jensch and. Contemporary ideas of the uncanny today.
0: I'm more of a Luddite at heart, but why do you think people are so adverse to machines looking more like us? You know, I've entered these discussions with like transhumanists who want to put technology in their bodies and trying to use that to evolve the human species, which is interesting in itself. I love those discussions because they let you enter the sci fi realm a little bit. But then every time I look at the news and I see a Boston Dynamics robot with a face, I'm just like, Man, how much sci-fi are we talking here? Because it doesn't seem that far off with the way that we're going. But there is this adverse, I guess, reaction to seeing something that looks similar to us. I don't know if it makes people question their own realities or question their own existence um, as a species. But I mean, it's I just. To me, it's just a whole separate thing. It's something that's growing with us at the same time. Yeah, we did create it, and I know there's probably people out there that would like to think that they're the elitist above those. I'm not saying that for me, but I'm looking at this like it's something about evolving together, and I think more people are having just a – bad reaction to it because of the direction of how we've excelled so fast, at least in a short amount of time. It seems like all this is kind of, I know we're in the information age and everything's coming at us like 24 seven, much like my questions are coming at you 24 (laughs) seven. But there is this Kind of, I think, pull back because we're not having a whole lot of warming up time to these things like you randomly get a Boston Dynamics video where the thing has a face and it's moving around and giving facial expressions. And then later you see another robot that has a gun in its hand and it's shooting targets left and right. So you're just kind of like nobody saw the buildup. They just kind of see the immediate results, you know, and that's that's something about us as a society, but also, yeah, you need the warm up because I don't think like some of these videos I watch, I'm like, yo, if that's real, when do I get one of those in my house? Because I'd love something that can, you know, sit and watch the football game or something with me. A
1: Boston Dynamics uh, robot or?
0: Boston Dynamics robot. One with a face. It's got to have eyes. That's all you need it for to be human.
1: I know. Um. Oh my goodness. I. I. It's the
0: blue one in the video. If you've ever seen that one before.
1: Okay. It um... looks like
0: I Robot. I'm waiting for Will Smith to dust off his detective hat and hop in the game because I'm getting scared <laughs> a little bit. <laughs>
1: I know uh, there's an artist who posts her work on um, Instagram. I saw a great interview with her a year or two ago, um, who uses the Boston dynamic, uh, I, I believe, robot dogs and uses them to create um, art. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it's it's a question of who designs them, right? Whose voices are heard, included in um, the design, and yeah, for what purposes they are used. So I think yeah yeah. and um looking at uh, like artificial intelligence applications or, or physical robots, that's so important to consider um the ethics and um, yeah, things like data privacy and surveillance, and are they used to promote connections, right, between humans and 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 again, this idea of kind of entanglement or um are they? used for yeah for violence or for um for kind of evil purposes.
0: Would people accept a robotic version of a dog more than they would accept a robotic version of a human. That's the thing for me. It's like I feel like we're okay with replacing pets at a point with robots. There might be a different disconnect or a little bit more time to warm up to it. But I don't know having a friend that's a robot, I don't know maybe I know there's people that have relationships with robots in some countries. That's fine. But I'm just looking at like the friend aspect. I'm like, I don't think we're at the stage yet or the technology hasn't gotten there enough to where we can somehow trick our brains into accepting this. And I don't think this is a new thing. I think this has just been, there's been ways we've been categorizing through history of what humans are. And that's from the past as well to ancient history. And they depict the machines in a way different way. But I'm just curious if you came in and across any of your work with the German literature, cultural, um, that there was anything that showed maybe I don't know, certain areas of people were just okay with it. We're accepting it faster than others. I'm seeing a lot more people accept it now, but there's still that, like I said, the uncanny valley that it's not right. It's not a hundred percent accepted enough by people.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, uh, I I know uh, Kate Darling, uh robotic ethics researcher at MIT, has done exciting work. I just happen to have one um, here. I don't know uh, the what That's is it It's a what robot. Called? The hex, hex bugs. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I can like let it scurry around. Yeah, uh, but that
0: doesn't freak you out. That's the crazy thing. It's like if it was that if that was a real centipede or something like that, I'd be jumping on some furniture or something like that but that thing doesn't freak me out i
1: mean it, it does suggest the movement of one and i i've tried to use this when uh for example teaching uh like kafka's metamorphosis you know and um but anyways kate darling and others have done research on um yeah uh, so kind of me- measuring empathy uh from what i remember it's been a couple of years since i uh, looked at, uh Uh, her studies, but uh, there's a difference. For example, if in an experimental setting, you ask someone, okay, here, take this hammer and smash this versus, you know, giving it a name. This is Gregor. And uh, if I were to tell you a narrative of Gregor's backstory, um, so all of that would kind of increase even if one doesn't really feel empathy for a hex bug. Um, So I think there's there's exciting uh, research yeah, happening in in robot ethics uh, by uh, people outside of like literary and cultural studies. So when when I was working on this project and also developing uh, my literature, of course, I was reading kind of a lot of, of the work in robot ethics and animal studies. And um, yeah, I think I mean, and also having domestic animal companions. In one's own home is also quite a new phenomenon. So, um, right there's um, and for example, John Berger, um, art uh, art scholar, wrote an important essay about looking, tracing that history of human animal relationships, and that's an important essay in um, interdisciplinary animal studies, looking at how um, right zoos developed uh, in. Uh, the uh, especially in the 19th century and um uh, and pet keeping also um yeah, kind of a, is is part of a, a gradual development, and and now with the internet, we have cat videos, right, and dog videos everywhere. So I think, yeah, it's it's a kind of familiarity. It's perhaps non threatening, um, and maybe science fiction, especially contemporary um, television and film, here plays a role. I'm thinking of a series. Um, it was available on Amazon Prime called Humans and and right a lot of the uncanniness even if for example in cinema it's a human actor uh, or actor um, playing a robot character it seems that where things become unsettling is when one cannot distinct, uh, distinguish at all between a human and a robot so um, yeah I think in in fiction um, there's yeah kind of uh, address this this need to distinguish in order to uh, kind of avoid the uncanny valley
0: did you ever see a bias in the writings back then of certain maybe a bias towards animals more or maybe a bias towards machines more i mean what was the feeling towards animals back then and the feelings towards machines because we think of animals as companions but if you even have an echo or whatever an alexa in your house you consider that a tool not a companion I mean, some people might have a really close relationship with their Alexa. I haven't met a whole lot of people like that. But it still would be considered a tool or device. It's not considered a companion as much as a dog is, even though the dog's in your home or a cat's in your home as much as the device or whatever you're using is.
1: Yeah, that's – yeah, I I think so. So the idea of robots as –
0: It was like a low-grade – philosophical question but it was one out there i'm just curious about the biasness of back then was there a bias at all towards animals or machines
1: well i can tell you what i know for example in the 19th century um i i published another article on um the animal the transnational animal rights movement in uh, the late 19th century and um and 19th century was also when, you know, having a pet became more accessible to especially the bourgeois um, classes. Um, But even even today, there are different views around the world um, about whether and which kinds of animals um, have what is known as sentience. So sentience, my understanding, basic definition is the ability to feel pleasurable or aversive um, state, so pleasure or pain. And even in the nineteenth century, it seemed somewhat controversial. Um, not everyone, um, at least in in uh, uh, what became Germany in the nineteenth century, not everyone believed that animals uh, were deserving of compassion. And um, the 19th century transnational animal rights movement um, in England spread to Germany, um, other places, uh, we see um, some literary uh, interventions and also um, yeah, the animal rights movement attempting to um, spread the idea that animals are worthy of compassion, they should not be um, subjected to torture um, and vivisection um, experiments. Um uh, so um yeah so I think that has also changed as well um and
0: um uh, in some cases there's still some in some cases. horrible testing scenarios going on today but I think there's some people in our society that still have a weird view of like humans are overall superior beings I don't hold that like I consider the value of a dog's life as important as I mean that's a tough question as well too but I don't know. I put put robots at the bottom. I'm sorry. I'm just not there yet with robots. I'll get there eventually. But um I just feel like I don't know. It seems like the times back then weren't so different. We have evolved in many many ways. But at least I mean that's interesting. I didn't know about the people like literature and the the movement that was sparking up to try and raise awareness that these I mean what would you consider sentience though? Cuz for robots I feel like sentience is like it has to speak and have dreams or brain or something like that. With animals it's just happiness and pain
1: um so yeah and and this is where I, I get to the limits of of what i know so um i mean um, my colleague and i approach this volume focusing on um literary depictions you know depictions and vis- uh, visual culture um so one of the goals of the um the project was to, again, bring history of emotions work in dialogue with animal studies, with post-humanism, other uh, work on uh, machines and artificial intelligence. Um, Our central concept um, and title of our introduction was Feeling Beyond the Human. So, and for us, that had a couple of um, different meanings. Um, So, central question throughout the project is what does it mean to be human, right? And and that's, we see this um, at the center of so many contemporary uh, science fiction films and novels and, and literary and cultural engagements um, in general. So we, we consider um, representations of the emotionality of sentience of robots and machines as they are imagined in these um, cultural products. But as science, uh, not as scientists. Uh, so we are we're kind of scholars of literature, culture and history. Um, we recognize the limits that we don't, we don't uh, know, right, what animals and uh, actually feel. And I think what's interesting is, um, I remember some time ago, I think on Twitter, now x, or whatever, I have not logged on in some time. Uh, but Uh, There was uh, an article about a machine that, was it someone at Google? Do you remember this? Someone thought that the machine was sentient. So, I mean, I think, um, yeah, works of literature and and cinema allow us to imagine non-human sentience. There is something called um artificial sentience i believe and that is kind of machines that are uh programmed uh, to simulate um right kind of emotional and in children's toys there are more and more um toy robots um so an early one was the dinosaur Plio, but every time i look online there are seemingly more and more advanced robots that display certain kinds of emotions you know with cutesy uh facial expressions light up uh even some up. of
0: those ai are pretty ex- extensive on how far they go to make it seem like it's a human talking. see i've had a conversation with ai and it apologized on certain things that i caught it in a lie or something like that and for me that gave me a checkbox for it being close to human or at least once the kind of the answers or responses get a little bit worded betterly but i can't complain i mean my emails aren't the best either so this thing just it, it was responding so quickly, but it was responding in, a, in exactly how I thought a regular conversation would go, which is like if this was a robo text or something like that and I didn't know, there was no way I'd be able to decipher if that was a robotic person or not. Now, you could tell when you get on the phone with them and it sounds like a recording, but through a text format, there's no way you'd be able to tell. If it was like a real AI and you were asking it questions and you didn't know it was an AI –
1: yeah, we're using ChatGPT, or, or which um, which program? I found
0: some because I was going to do for my fifteen hundred episode, I was going to have some AI scan all my episodes and try and recreate me. So I was looking for AI generators. Those. Be careful with those. Those privacy rights are ridiculous. They like every site's like they own your voice and everything. I'm like, hang on a second. Uh, but I found this one where I could just text it and talk to it. And the next thing I know, this thing was just responding to me and it was asking, You said you like to travel. I was like, I never said I like to travel. What are you saying to me right now? And then we just got into like the history of like crime and all this type of stuff. And he's like, I don't feel comfortable answering any more questions. So I was like, Why? We got to talk about it. It's important to talk about it. He's like, You're right. So what do you like baseball? And I was like, Are we talking about crime still? He's like, I don't want to talk about that. I was like, you just lied to me. But that's like how like these conversations get so real where I'm like, I would have never thought that this would be the direction, especially in only a couple of years, it seems like these things have evolved, which makes it kind of scary about what's going to be like in the future. But
1: I remember when I was an undergraduate in a delightful honors seminar, I think now that I think about it, it was one thing that maybe got me early uh, early on interested in these topics so we um, learned about the Turing test and what you described right this kind of um, this ability to pass as human to um, suggest right um uh, kind of sorrow or right the need to apologize and uh, possibly lying. So yeah that um, and things have changed so quickly and and that might indeed as you as you were saying might be why it's all um, so, unsettling for for some people in particular because um wait what especially since the pandemic I mean I remember not just the Starship robots but also um uh kind of like ro- security robots or I think they look for like spills and things and sort of those popped up in uh supermarkets um around where I live uh when the pandemic started and um yeah oh chat GPT I mean, is it, it gets into
0: It gets into an area that you wrote about in your book um but it's benevolent bots i mean that whole area there's there's a whole bunch of things now like the area of bots is an area of interest for me but i'm curious when you talked about benevolent bots what did you could you maybe explain for the people out there listening
1: sure um so that um was my chapter my kind of single author chapter in the book and in um that i'm looking at um, depictions of robots um and perhaps sentience here plays a role um as well um so there they
0: robots, do good that's the question they
1: do they do good yeah so it, it's again getting back to the idea of right why can we um why are we more open to um a robot dog or right one that looks like a pet or right uh, the hex bugs again um Anyway, so the chapter um, covers contemporary uh, German children's uh, fiction, and uh, yeah, so the robots are friends to uh, the children, and the earliest one In translation, it's called Schlupp from the Green Star, published in the 1970s. I think that's a precursor to the um, other more recent um, children's books that I looked at for the chapter. Um, But in that first um, uh, book, uh, Schlupp, published in the 70s, we have a robot that was via a technical malfunction produced and given a soul. And so again, we have this, this idea, right? What is, what is a soul? Where is it located? What is, um, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? So, yeah very kind of humanistic uh philosophy in that text some of the contemporary ones maybe approach more the idea of entanglement we see uh friendship uh possible though with the child but in each case the um the robot is cute it's childlike it's you know same stature um, as uh, the child protagonist so yeah i think um I asked in the chapter, like, what do these texts do? What are they trying to um, teach? And uh, one aim does seem to be to teach children respect for all life forms, other humans, um, but also this kind of openness, right, to um, yeah, respect for, there are also animal characters uh, in the children's books as well. So I think they, they might be informed in part by contemporary ideals of post-humanism and the interrelatedness of all life forms, um, it's, it's living right. and non-living.
0: This is going to take us a little bit into the emotion history a little bit, but I wanted to – do you think people understand what a soul is? I know I've heard many depictions of it. It's not really a work-related question. It's more of your own personal you know, understanding because for a soul, like I mean if you create a robot that's really advanced and does everything like exactly like if it's just me, you won't treat it like it's a human. You won't treat it like it's anything advanced because it's still a machine. But then you said, oh, we accidentally gave it a soul. A number of people are going to start treating it a lot differently and they go, this thing really does have a soul. The Google thing, it didn't have a soul. It didn't have a soul. The guy was way too involved in his work, but they, that, that scared a lot of people. Even I got a little bit like, wait a minute, what did we just do? And it was just that idea of saying we gave it a soul. We don't know what it means. There's many depictions of what a soul means, but for some reason, there's a mental checklist something that was just checked off in the box of what it means to be more qualified as a human being or species or something that a lot of people would look at as more of a entity rather than a thing does that make sense a little bit
1: yeah absolutely and i i think uh, i i definitely can't answer that all i can say is i think we've been trying for centuries to determine what is a soul right what is what is life what are emotions, which brings us to the history of emotions. Um, indeed, I mean, I, I think um, what fascinates me about all of these things, I mean, there's there's a, one on the one hand continuity, right, in this, again, the, the, somewhere between these poles of um, attraction, right, friendship, but also aversion, fear, um, um, in relation to uh, technologies in particular, um, also animals. Uh, but yeah, emotions. Like, what is an emotion? Uh, even uh, asking different emotion scholars and and um, emotion studies is a very interdisciplinary field encompassing history, literary, cultural studies, um, neurosciences, psychology, anthropology, and so on. Um, so perhaps uh, I can I can say a little bit about how I came to. Um, the history of emotions. So disclaimer for all historians listening, I am not technically a historian. By training um, my field, uh, German studies, um, I kind of teach the whole uh, spectrum of of cultural history um, um, early and contemporary literature, um, but history of emotions is also interdisciplinary and what Um, What I find fascinating about the field, there were precursors, for example, um, Peter Gay's Psychohistories, also uh, Norbert Elias in uh, the early 20th century in sociology, and some uh, French theorists, Um, but the history of emotions is now a couple of decades old, so really um, emerged in the late 80s and 1990s. Um, but it's, I still encounter people who are like history of emotions. What do you mean that emotions have a history? So I think um, the work is still um, is still developing. It's a really exciting field. Um, so uh, let me see if I can briefly summarize you, a couple of things about it.
0: So I would say, were you able to find when it started, like when people started recognizing that they were experiencing a thing? I mean, I'm sure that's very, very hard to trying to figure out when that actually initially occurred. But what was the literature talking about? What were more romance novels, anything like that? There's a category, but there's also a large chunk that people focused on in certain time periods, whether it was a certain era that was heavily on everybody's mind or something like that. I've just noticed my only knowledge for this comes from like looking at the 50s and earlier, a lot of the stuff that I was coming across, a lot more propaganda, a lot more government, a little bit more political than I would normally see, which involves a high tense of emotions, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, whether it's these types of things that really strike a chord for a lot of people. So I'm just curious what it was going on at times. What was the literature like? Were they paint Were they talking about more things, about happy stories or sad stories, or was it mostly uh, a question of trying to understand what this thing that people were experiencing was?
1: Okay, um, so – First, I before I try to answer your question, I am, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit more about the history of emotions and, and how I came to it. So the history of emotions um, emphasizes change over time. So emotions vary across cultures. Um, historians view emotions not as universal, um, but embodied. They are also determined or influenced by culture and related to values. So um yeah, these these ideas and as some I should mention some important names in the field include uh Peter and Carol Stearns, William Reddy, Ute Freywart, Rob Bodis, Barbara Rosenwein, Jan Plumper, Ben O'Gamerill, Thomas Dixon, and Katie Barclay. And I've mentioned scholars kind of in Germany, in the UK, in Australia, um, and elsewhere. Um, but this idea still seems kind of controversial to people um, that I just say, like, oh, I'm interested in this group of emotions. I'm like, wait, what? You mean like emotions aren't the same? They aren't just these like internal, right, things that kind of, right, we, we repress emotions and express them and so on. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of exciting research out there, um, for example, um, by psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, she um talks about kind of the way that we've uh, viewed emotions um she calls the classical view of emotions this idea that has persisted for over 2000 years um viewing emotions and rationality as completely um separate things and um, she proposes her own view called the, cons- the theory of constructed emotion um that emphasizes emotions as social they are um actively constructed through complex interactions between bodies, um, brains, and cultures. And this um, idea has influenced um, historians as well. Also, um, I should mention the work of philosophers such as Martha Nussbaum, who, um, who emphasizes also the cognitive nature of emotions and how they're related to ethical reasoning and kind of value uh, perceptions or judgments. Um, Yeah, so what interested me um, taking this interdisciplinary knowledge and emotion studies specifically the work that historians were doing i um, became interested in this as a literary and cultural scholar to see okay how can i um kind of retell um the narrative of emotions or, or Um, complicate the picture of emotionality in the literary texts um, that I'm working with. So um, some emotions that I focus on in uh, my dissertation uh, project for the PhD and also um, some new projects include, um, for example, anger and in the 19th century, uh, for example, there were prohibitions on uh, on women's anger. Um, today, that still uh, uh, continues, uh, but there is, I think, more awareness of um, of kind of the gendered um, expectations surrounding certain emotions, such as anger. Um, and then also the late 19th century um, in the German context, and uh, surely others as well, we had debates about honor codes and dueling and um, and uh, that became uh, began to change around 1900. Uh, shame, pride. So um, the emotions that interest me most are uh, ones that we might consider social or moral emotions. Ones that are really important um, for, yeah, ideas of morality, of kind of social uh, movements, organization, and so on. Compassion is another um, big one. Could you describe morality?
0: On. Could you describe the um, morality? Like, what are some examples that you would have maybe writings on about morality? Good and bad, that's such a weird line, I would say, because things I consider bad, other people consider, like that's not bad at all. Like cursing, for instance, I curse a lot, but some people consider that bad or morally bad. I'm like, I don't think that's morally bad. It's just a, I don't know, it's a word, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, so, well, I'm I'm interested in how um emotions become kind of mobilized and and how uh, for I guess I can go back to um, the late 19th century example again of compassion and um again in in uh, my previous work, I looked at how um disgust and compassion were mobilized in and uh, this one literary text to um, to uh, kind of change uh readers' perceptions of these diagrams of vivisected animals, which were quite sad and disgusting, to uh, then kind of reframe that and then use that to promote um, empathy uh, for animals. So yeah, what interests me is uh, is kind of how emotions are so important in uh, moral um, judgments and and kind of how that changes over time.
0: It makes probably some of the biggest, largest decisions on where a nation or wherever a place goes i mean most people live their life off their morality when it comes to whether it's a good decision or a bad decision they make they kind of weigh the options and then take the risk but a lot of change happens because of people's morality changes i mean if you look at the morality back in the day compared to the morality now not recognizable there's a lot of changes and for the better and it's important that those changes happen but it's interesting to me to see how long and what took those changes to occur Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what um, historians and other emotion scholars are emphasizing that emotions play a huge role in those social um, movements, whether it's um, promoting empathy. um, uh, So empathy also important um, in the women's movement um, in around 1900 and uh, the gay liberation movement. So yeah and and right thinking of uh the 1960s and 70s as well so um yeah emotions are connected to morality are a part of cognition um and and again this still seems to be um, a kind of control, controversial view just because uh popular media um has for so long, and again for centuries, we've kind of considered emotions in certain Western societies as these individual, right, um, feelings, expressions uh, that kind of demand to be released that are at odds with um, rationality.
0: Well, culturally, some were accepted and some weren't, which was the biggest mistake we ever made because suppressing emotion is not a good thing either i mean you can take this like i said my knowledge might be a little bit different from yours on this but they repressed i mean sex films you couldn't have a film where a woman was naked a guy was naked it doesn't have to be sex it's just you have to show a train going in a tunnel you couldn't show that in the us and then it all changed when french cinema kind of enlisted in there i mean look at france they don't consider any of our scandals of that nature at all a problem they're like what you guys gave them crap for that but we consider it a huge problem over here that is Western ideology or whatever you want to say over here that has given us that vocal point on things. But it's interesting that different cultures think of things a hell of a lot differently than we do, which makes me question the narratives in general of like, why do I think that I need to do this and do this when another country doesn't do that at all? They have different ideas or different thoughts and emotions on things
1: yeah, that that's a great example of, of even among um, Western societies, different views and in Germany, it's similar with um, with depictions of the body and and it's just accepted and, and natural and you know, not uh, not always sexualized as it tends to be um, in the US in contemporary media. So yeah, that's that's a great example. And I think um, that is what the history of emotions emphasizes that by looking to the past, we see uh right not just the history of of kings and whatever but also it it kind of uh, goes along with um a shift to look at the history of the everyday and the history of more common people and uh voices who've been um excluded uh in right and kind of previous understandings of history so um emotions allow us to understand uh and and that's i think an interesting question some might say well how do you know how people really felt in times past right and but i think we can um look for example at uh medieval courtly love songs and realize that okay this is this is maybe familiar but there there's also something different right in how uh how they yeah talk about kind of this different social structures and different Um, understandings of love that might be very different from, say, contemporary ballads. So um, when I teach, I try to, uh, especially in in my German cultural history course, I try to kind of bring in some of those examples that um, really allow us to see um, individuals in the past in um, a different light. So yeah. So um, on the one hand, the history of emotions does that. So it complicates our understanding of the past. But then, by realizing that there have been different ways of feeling and judging, um, that again allows us to really closely examine and question our present. And well, do we need to feel ashamed uh, for doing X, uh, Y, Z? Or um, so? Yeah. It it gives. I think it allows us to realize that we have agency. Uh, to change how we think and change how we feel um, on an individual level, and then also I think awareness as a society, we can pay attention to uh, right to uh, things that may not be ideal. And in here, we have emotions and technology. And I think one of the the thing uh, that is maybe a little bit scary are the deep fakes and how politicians can use them to manipulate right. Uh, can manipulate uh yeah viewers and and kind of um so yeah well, the that- real big
0: thing is what ai is doing with um recreating dead people's songs um and they sound so good too i hate to say it i don't know if you've ever seen that before but they recreated uh amy winehouse's songs oh my god it's so good it it sounds like amy winehouse that's the scary thing is that there's not a single bit of it that's off where you're like wait a minute like it's So when people say that's what they're doing right now, it's why the actors are on strike and everybody's on strike down here is that they are trying to buy the license and the look and the image of background actors so they don't have to worry about them coming in to film a thing. They can just use their face in perpetuity for however long. And in many movies as they want, they just sign a one-time rights license payout. And I'm like, Look, they talked about this with holograms, trying to put Tupac up at a concert and have people listen to an old recording of Tupac, but have a hologram there to display a projection of the singer. And I'm like, well, when you say you buy my likeliness, does that mean even after I'm dead? Like it's a real serious ethical question. I'm sorry. I just went off on a little bit, but it's big concerns.
1: I was not aware of this. uh, What is it? An app that that creates, recreates uh, deceased singers.
0: So there's there's a thing out there you can look up. It's a bunch of researchers had done this. They scanned all of Amy Winehouse's work and other artists too, but Amy Winehouse's is the best. Everyone else sounds a little bit funky and they just scanned all of her songs and they created new ones. Now there's AI apps out there already now called Boomy. I think one's one's called boomy it'll create auto-generated music and you get to coordinate where it goes and it'll learn and learn and learn to get you closer to an ai created song but this one was creating off of old people's works and making new works and they sounded so accurate now hollywood's doing the same thing with buying faces or buying pictures of people's faces and their image and trying to use them as background things so they look like it, technology with AI is so crazy now. You don't actually need to have a person saying that you can just fill up a back room with AI. It's just CGI stuff. And that's what they want to do. And that's why all these writers are on strike. Where I'm like, I don't know where this goes with society. No wonder people are pissed. I'd be mad too,
1: yeah. I mean, this this is I yeah, oh gosh. And then it makes me think of um chat GPT and apparently, I, I haven't looked into this in detail, but I've heard uh, rumors that there are a bunch of novels uh, available on Amazon Prime, for example, that were written by Chat GPT. And, you know, the market is flooded. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, I, I don't know if there are, if writers are protesting um, this as well. But yeah, I think it's so new. I mean, I remember... I was on uh, research leave in like December 2022 and I, that seems to be when ChatGPT was released if I remember correctly and uh and and kind of I remember the buzz about it and how you know it would impact teaching and and I've uh, had discussions with a, con- a couple of contemporary um german writers about yeah chat gpt and and kind of the impact on on writers and and artists and yeah like people need to be heard and uh and artists and and creatives and people of all kinds need to be compensated for their work so i am glad that they are bringing this um as long
0: as you're not making another fast and furious movie i don't think i could do another one <laughs> like two more supposed to be coming out i don't think i can handle it but i wanted to ask you about when you mentioned about the history of emotions did this give you deeper insight into understanding emotions more maybe from a more historical perspective but also did it change the way that you think about emotions today as well too
1: yeah absolutely i think um well and and i believe um even like lisa feldman barrett uh, writes about this in in um her book i think it's called the making of emotions um it, it's challenging you know because um for so long i mean we're still kind of embedded in these ideas of emotion and, and rationality and, you know, and, and these kind of oppositions. And one thing that um, Erica and I tried to do in our book is really challenge um, some of these oppositions between emotion and reason and the individual and society. And um, yeah, also the, the the human and the non-human and so, but so sometimes even even though I my views of emotionality are informed by the history of emotions I think sometimes it's easy to slide into uh, you know the kind of classical view of emotion that um, I mentioned defined by Lisa Feldman Barrett because it's still seemingly everywhere and I wanted to mention um, earlier the film have you seen Disney Pixar's Inside Out?
0: I've been meaning to watch it, but I've seen a large amount of clips for it. I am not ashamed to say it either.
1: Okay, that is fine. Uh, So, um, yeah, it's interesting. So that illustrates a completely different model of emotion. So there are five emotion characters um, in the film. And uh, the film largely draws on uh, a very different view um, that many historians of emotion kind of um, argue against, and that's the idea of uh, six basic or universal universal emotions proposed by evolutionary psychology. And um, a scholar associated with this view is um, Paul Ekman, for example. Um, I mean, I think the film has important messages for children. We talked about. Uh, um, kind of different so the connection between morality and emotion and one important message is about joy and that joy and sadness often work together and right we can't be happy all the time so i think that's one important message the film offers um it also kind of gets into gender stereotyping um territory where the emotion characters um in the protagonist's head um uh, so represented uh, as uh, masculine include um, the emotion, anger versus uh, feminine emotions are sadness and joy and uh, I believe disgust. So um, yeah, but I think that. Well, I didn't know that, that. View, yeah. So that film has popularized again, this view of basic universal um, emotions, uh, which again, although it has important uh, messages, I feel like there are, many different uh, contemporary media um, available today that still largely draw on um, this kind of ahistorical historical um, view of emotions. I had
0: a child's view of that movie because when I was watching the dinner scene where they were going in the dad's head and the mom's head, when they showed the anger emoji, I'm like, did they just give the mom's anger a wig and then glasses? And they're like, that's how you know it's a female's anger. I was like, make them jacked. They all have to have muscles. It's the anger emoji or the emotion. It's got to be jacked. It doesn't matter who it's in. It's got to be a huge jacked. But do they ever have a color for happiness on there? Because I think um, as far as I can tell, happiness is the
1: uh, joy. I think joy was like represented by yellow. But that's
0: fear. I've been asking this question to people who study like emotions and stuff. I'm like, does, um, does happiness have a color? and then a lot of them haven't really gave me an answer. I mean yellow is fear, they all agree on that, but the only one that we don't have a color for is happiness. Anger's red, fear, I mean sad is blue.
1: Yeah, you mean in the film or in general? In general. In general. I mean I imagine that is also very culturally determined right so I think they in the film they chose yellow for joy Um, looking at those memory orbs as well and thinking of emoji right the original yellow smiley face um, which is now in all kinds of different colors and shapes and 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 that's another that's another thing that um, fascinates me emoji and kind of right that intersection between emotions and technology and but then also scary things like uh, data (laughs) data mining and, and privacy and kind of uh algorithms that may kind of attempt to manipulate user emotion our
0: privacy is gone that doesn't exist you just got to <laughs> accept it at this point
1: yeah yeah probably uh, i was
0: looking through old like government documents the things about like Edgar hoover wiretapping people and americans and things of that sort and i'm like you know half of this stuff in here that i'm reading in the 70s that was such a horrible crime it's like just normal now you'd say people are spying on you people don't care everyone accepts it now that they have a phone in their pocket i'm like i don't know i'm still worried about it but i have so many friends that use proton mail i don't use proton mail like man they could be reading your emails i'm like what are they gonna say i got i'm sending a zoom link that's all they get to know (laughs) Like, like that's all i got but i get some people want secure privacy and things of that sort. But I mean, honestly, at this point, it's not even you should be afraid of like the government stuff. It's just be afraid of that technology, any corporation out there that wants to sell your data. I think even Apple had someone hack their server and they gave out a bunch of private information on like a, I mean, a lot of people's cell phones. And it's just an accident. They did an update to fix it. But it's like, what about our data privacy? Sorry. yeah, The answer you get.
1: Yeah, and so many times, right? What we agree to might be right hidden right under our noses, but right the terms and conditions are just pages and pages long, and and yeah, how how many people actually read through everything for all of these kinds of?
0: I did when I was going to recreate myself with AI. As soon as I read in that fine print it said it's it's you your down. image, I was <laughs> like, hell no! That it might be a good idea, but there's no way, man.
1: So you backed out and then used the different app that's still- I
0: just used the one that I just texted to. It doesn't own my voice. This app was going to recreate me, like all through the podcast stuff. It was going to recreate a, something I could talk to. That was me. But through the podcast, because I'm like myself on the podcast as well, too. So I figured it would be interesting to see if my mom could tell me apart from the AI. But they were like, we own your, we own your image, and then we own your voice.
1: Oof, and I'm oof. like-
0: what so then i just used the text app where i texted an ai so it, it it just gets the conversation i guess but it doesn't own my voice or anything like that it might have gotten some info from my phone but i also don't have anything but dog photos and sunsets on my phone Dog,
1: <laughs> kittens hate sun- to be
0: that guy <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh goodness yeah i mean that that is that is terrifying but like I mean, the temptation, I imagine the curiosity, your curiosity must have been like tremendous I mean, because that, that would be so cool.
0: (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That sounds like there's plenty of other people that would have been like, screw it. And then just gone right through with it. But my whole, and I mean, I just became, I've had a lot of people on here who have made like either worked for Apple, worked for Google, was a whistleblower for Google or something of that sort, where they've came on the show and exposed a lot of issues with these corporations and their over stretches of power to where like now i'm like when i see a terms and conditions thing i'm like let me get on my readers and i'm going to start reading this thing because it's really i tell my friends all the time too and they're just like now i'm going to click through man i just want to play i'm like no no, 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 be careful because there's some things in there that you should check like tiktok is you know that's a sketchy territory in itself
1: Um, oh yeah uh tiktok is banned in the state of virginia for like state employees i never um used it i don't yeah i don't think i ever used it i'm on
0: it but i think they just uh i don't know what's going on with them to be honest with you they have these back and forth you can't talk about the ccp on there i did it and the video got shadow banned um says it's got nine views but it's got over 300 something likes where i'm like look my math ain't the best but that don't add up you know so i mean this this everyone's got weird things i mean sensor stuff is an issue as well too but now it's everyone if they create technology that becomes a part of our life there's always going to be someone out there who wants to control it doesn't yeah. matter what it is and that's just i mean maybe that's a human thing inside of us but there's always this yeah. wanting it to be better and i don't know where that comes from but
1: yeah, yeah. It's so I mean, from what you said, it sounds like the the first step is spreading awareness and and maybe we could start that on a smaller scale, encouraging friends to read terms and conditions, for example, right? And supporting um the protests by uh, by creatives who, right? Um yeah, wow.
0: Things are need changing people, so quickly. people need to understand the technology, but they also need to like. We're so quick to buy something, but I think connecting with it or just trying to understand it as well, too, on a deeper level, like how it's made, what's the process, you know, I think gives people better insight, also more respect as well, too. You know, once I started learning about like people's shows and people's other things and what it took to do that, a lot more respect for it just because, you know, it does take a long process. And I think that's what people, I think to get people to that morality level where they actually start making good decisions is by getting them to connect to a deeper level.
1: Yeah. Process seems key. I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, thinking about, right, writing a novel or creating a painting or acting in a film, like.
0: Or translating all the German into English. Good trans- job. Oh, Good job. Yes. yes look at that it's a good segue wasn't it I'm just good segue.
1: well yeah so uh somewhere i have stickers from a wonderful um translation workshop i attended in berlin last month um but yeah translation um pay translators for their work and also like uh i mean google translate and and deep l and all of these other programs you know have uh gotten better over the years but translation is such an important skill and these tools make mistakes and they lack um the kind of cultural right um yeah the cultural knowledge uh that uh, that people have so definitely glad you mentioned translation
0: no seriously that's great work I, i think a lot of people wouldn't go that extra step to do something like that but you did and i really appreciate that um and I appreciate you giving me the time to talk on my show as well, too. I know we kind of covered a wide range of subjects here, but I appreciated the conversation. Is there a place where people can find your links and anything else you'd like to promote? You said you had Twitter. Are you active on it or are you just active on like Instagram?
1: I'm probably going to delete it. So um, I do... <laughs> I do have uh, a university web profile. I am on um, yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, I don't really use it. I have a personal website, um, but I can give you all of those links. And yeah, again, the um, the link to the introduction of this book is available in open access. I will also plug um, keywords for today um, is a uh, is the first volume I co-edited with uh Colin McCabe, a film scholar, and uh my colleagues involved in uh the Keywords project. We also have a website there. And and I guess the common thread with all of my work is, is looking at change over time in literary texts, in visual culture. And this one focuses not on uh German studies, but on um. Um, English uh, language usage and um, terms that are contested uh, but commonly used, Um, and it's based on uh, an important work by um, cultural theorist Raymond Williams, um, his book, uh, Keywords, A Vocabulary of Culture and Society. So we updated that, and that was published a few years ago. So yeah, I can give you all of those um, links, and I'd be delighted to connect with with people who are interested in um, continuing the conversation in some format. Thank you so much for the invite, Ravi.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.